I'm Panicky in the UK, and this is Panicky Pride. Hi, gay. What do you think of my attempt to find a queer version of the Wilhelm scream? Because I think I nailed it. All right, it's Pride Month, and so, of course, I had to try and emotionally manipulate my good friend Johnny into being on the podcast again. And guess what? He said yes! Even though he is the proud new father of a French bulldog puppy that I refuse to call anything but Pierre, uh, and is very busy and important, but he still agreed to come on and talk about gay rom-coms with me, and thank you so much to Johnny. A uh, little bit of housekeeping, uh, we did have some technical issues, I won't bore you with the details, but we had some connection stuff, we had to kind of switch halfway through, so you will notice, um, I would say, a drop in audio quality. I think it's still perfectly listenable, I think it's fine. But you know, if there's ever uh, like a moment where it seems like there's a slightly abrupt transition or anything like that, that's probably why as well we may have lost connection. Uh, for a little bit and I've uh, I've tried to stitch it together as naturally as possible and I know that you'll forgive me because you're cool like that and if you enjoy this episode which I'm sure you will uh, Johnny was previously on the podcast in my Christmas episode and also my it's a sin episode and also if you're interested in queer media in general i also have um an lgbt plus history month roundup episode uh from a couple of years back now um so uh so do please go back and listen to that i haven't listened to it in a while it might be bad i don't know (laughs) but you know give it a shot why not uh anyway uh johnny and i talked for a long time um, but I think it's all gold, so um, I, I sincerely hope that uh, that you enjoy this extra long action fact. Although I say extra long, I mean I can talk for about an hour and a half by myself, uh, so <laughs> it'll probably just be nice to hear another voice in the mix. Alright, uh, let's, <laughs> let's pass it over to Past Me and Johnny. I think it was the Christmas episode that we did, which was like maybe two and a half years ago now, which makes me feel insane. Um, yes. I believe we were talking about um, a film. It was like a lesbian Thanksgiving movie. Is this Ring Any Bells? It was um, Home for the Holidays. Home for the Holidays, right. Which wasn't lesbian. It did have Holly Hunter in it. But she went home for the holidays and her brother was played by Robert Downey Jr. Oh, who okay. was who was her gay brother. Right. And there was a story there, and now I'm struggling to remember what it was. No, 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 that's cool. We don't uh, like that's not like a part of the conversation particularly. Um mm-hmm. I probably thought it was lesbian because I think we talked about um happiest season in the same conversation. So it's yes. just amalgamating them. Um but just my my big memory from that conversation is me kind of going, there should be more gay rom-coms, <laughs> which first of all, like deeply banal observation, but also I kind of feel like that was a real monkey's paw moment um, because suddenly we got two in one year. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, so last year was a big year for the gay rom-com. Of course, we had Fire Island came out maybe 
uh, I want to say like three months before Bros, something like that. But did Fire Island get a theatrical release? No, Fire Island was on Hulu. Right. Uh, in the U in the US, um, Disney Plus here. I can't. I think it came onto Disney Plus here. Yes. So yeah. I don't think that got theatrical release at all. Whereas Bros did which was a whole thing about yeah. it's like, you know, it's a more of a, a traditional studio rom-com with loads of money yeah. behind it, including the marketing and the rollout, which ended up causing it to be kind of a bit of a flop. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was a whole thing where Billy Eichner said, this is the first gay rom-com to have like, um, an, was it like a predominantly gay cast or like a gay writer and main cast i don't know i mean nicholas stoller he's not gay right is he gay i don't think so no but he's directed because he directed a few studio rom- uh, studio comedies like the Na- bad neighbors film yeah um, and like, although i um, think that billy eichner was Marshall. in yeah i think billy eichner was in the second neighbors film or something like that i haven't seen um it. I have not seen And by the way, they're called Bad Um, Neighbours in this territory, so as not to confuse people, because they're not... Yes, uh, that's right, because Neighbours... Australian soap opera Neighbours, sadly. Exactly. I would have gone to see that. Yes. Um, Yeah, I would probably have done too. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, no, I mean, I've seen... I actually saw a couple of Nicholas Stoller... I keep wanting to say Stoller, um, but that's my... uh, that's my time in Germany. Um, Nicholas Stoller movies recently. I saw Forgetting Sarah Marshall and I saw Get Him to the Greek. Um, so that's kind of his wheelhouse. Um, but yeah, okay, well, let's talk about Fire Island first, things that came out first. Um, I think you said, because um, like I was stalking your letterboxed, um, I think you were kind of saying that you felt it was... Um, kind of aimed at a straight audience to a degree is that fair i i think so i mean like i don't know between bros and fire island i weirdly thought that fire island was kind of catering to a straight audience a bit more even though bros was actually the kind of studio one with the massive budget mm. and actually for me the less successful film as well um but fire island it, it just had this uh, interesting contrast of like certain parts of it that feel like quite specific and quite well observed in terms of some of the conversations and arguments that they would have um and the portrayal of what i understand fire island actually is like Mm. um versus like the voiceover which kind of i think was in part to try trying to tie into the sort of literary uh pride and prejudice sort of um adaptation thing i think the, the, the voiceover was doing that to a large extent but it also was sometimes feeling like it was explaining things a bit like unnecessarily but i think the voiceover partly was to tie it into this Pride and Prejudice um, narrative, mm. but also felt a little bit sometimes like it was explaining parts of gay culture. Like to what a Fire Island audience, is. Which... Yeah, I, 
I think that's interesting. I didn't really feel that way when I watched it, but I think maybe that's because my basis of comparison was something like Love, Simon, which I feel like is so much catering towards a straight audience and so much kind of presuming that the audience is straight. Um, so I think that because that was kind of my baseline, I like Fire Island didn't leap out to me as as being too bad about that and I guess also like for an international audience maybe you know there are good reasons to kind of explain Fire Island and what goes on there as well yeah I mean it wasn't a massive like like I said I think if anything Fire Island did that more than bros but I think it was the more successful film for me than bros so um yeah, I don't know. It was just it was just some things where it felt a bit uneven. Like it felt like the bit where they were talking about the kind of going through all the drugs they were using, and like they were like, "Oh, that's ketamine. It's horse tranquilizer." And it's like, guys, <laughs> we, everyone, every fifteen-year-old at yeah. school gets taught that ketamine is horse tranquilizer. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, but yeah, it, Fire Island was kind of. I don't know. I, I basically, I thought it was fine. It had a few moments that made me chuckle. Yeah. Um, and I, I thought that the, the kind of the retelling of Pride and Prejudice, like, I feel like it kind of worked for me. Like, it was a bit, it is a bit silly, like a lot of those sort of things are. And I guess it's kind of, it's in the vein of, of romantic comedies because it is doing a modern retelling of a Jane yes. Austen thing. Like um, that, that is, it's referring to those sort of films as well. It's obviously not as good as something like Clueless, but, um, and Pride and Prejudice is maybe like, it's maybe like a bit too obvious yeah. of a type sort of th- uh, thing to choose. Um But I thought, I just, I thought it was cute. I thought it was, there were enough moments where it felt like it, um, was portraying something that was well observed, quite authentic, quite specific to um, sort of gay community mm. in New York or whatever in this day and age, um, as well as um, sort of touching on what you might call like deeper issues that without feeling like it was turning into like an issue mm. movie, I suppose. I uh, Yeah, I, I would say I had broadly the same reaction. Um you know, I I thought it was really charming, you know, like the characters were very likable. I enjoyed their company um, on the whole. Um, I found it a kind of very like genial sort of hangout movie. I didn't think the Pride and Prejudice thing worked as well um, for a couple of reasons. I think one is just that, you know, as soon as you know it's Pride and Prejudice, you know exactly what the beats are going to be. So Okay, you don't watch a rom-com to be surprised. I totally get that. But, like, once you can kind of plot it out beat by beat exactly what's going to happen, it does, for me, maybe kind of make it slightly less engaging. And the other thing for me was, I mean, it's over, what, five days? Something like that? Like, less than a week? Maybe it's seven days, but it said over this really truncated time period and for me now you're more of an austin guy than i am but for me i think like so much of pride and prejudice is about like yearning you know and about like 
a slowly developing relationship that sort of changes over time. And I feel like trying to shove that into a seven day period takes away from a lot of what works about the original story for me. Um, So to me, the Pride and Prejudice thing was a big part of what didn't work about it, whereas a lot of the other elements did work. But there's one other thing as well, which is I think as soon as you um, make all of those characters, like the the quote-unquote sisters, gay and not related, you start to kind of, like, why... Why would Jane and Lizzie not just like fall in love with each other? If they're like, if they're, but like, you know, they love each other so much. They're not related in this. They're both gay. I'm not saying like, you know, just because two people are gay and like they get on really well that they have to date or fall in love. But if it were, you know, if, if that were two straight characters who weren't related and who had that kind of relationship together, there would at least be. Uh, and who were like one was a man and one was a woman you know there would at least be a question of that of like why has this never happened you know so that was something that I kind of wondered about as well I mean interesting I feel I mean I I just quite liked the fact that there were um I thought its portrayal of of gay friendships seemed quite like believable to me I can't remember if it was ever revealed whether any of those friends had ever slept with each other in the past I don't remember um, but but I don't think so but if if it is anything like real life I can we can assume that they probably have because um that's how lots of gays make yeah. <laughs> uh but uh I the, the main two the main two I think are kind of um I don't know, it's interesting because they obviously were friends for a very long time, I seem to remember. And I, I don't I don't feel like I wanted them to get together or felt like it was weird that they never had or that wasn't a question. But there was that scene where um, he sort of... Is it Bo and Yang? Yeah, it's Bo and Yang Bo and, and Yang Joel is Kim the actor. Booster, right? Yeah. So when, when Bo and Yang is kind of... Isn't there a scene where he, he basically says like you know you're you're like really hot and i'm yeah. like not he kind of yeah. like says you're you're on like a certain tier yes, that does. i am i'm not on yeah and and he kind of gets a bit um as in he kind of gets annoyed with him because mm. he's sort of not recognizing that mm. or something um which i thought was like i thought that was one of the times where it felt like it was touching on something a little bit deeper mm. um and something quite true about like the kind of strata of sort of gay Hotness. I don't know pa- I don't want to say power but just like you know this sense in the community of like you know there's a, there's hot ones mm. and they're just on like this different strata than the other ones sure. and then yeah I don't know and there's a bit more of that in bros as well but I guess it for me that's like it kind of that does slightly relate to your question because whether it's right or not and whether the Joel Kim Booster guy like does or doesn't want to admit it. Like, I feel like it's kind of trying to acknowledge it there. It's yeah. kind of trying to say, like, you know, he's hotter than him, so they they're not going to get together, and that's <laughs> and that's like maybe just a bit more of an honest. That's a bit more of an honest um, uh, reflection of what get the gay or gay community is like. Um, I don't know. Bo and Yang still ends up with a hot guy in the end, a hot doctor. That is true. Who is 
dumb <laughs> dumb as a box of yeah. bricks that was another thing as well is kind of like i feel like jane jane's not the smartest really it, it is interesting right because like in the original text you've kind of got this idea that like lizzie is the uh, kind of brainy like bookworm who's attractive but you know she's not like the hot one and jane is maybe a little bit more basic but she's you know she's got it going on and they kind of reversed mm. that here a little bit which was interesting but I mean, I don't know, the, the the adaptations of Pride and Prejudice have sort of done that too, where they have kind of made Elizabeth the really hot one. I mean, they've, they've kind of made, they've kind of made Elizabeth and Jane both very attractive, yeah. whereas I think in the book, isn't it clearly that Jane is supposed to be like the beauty? Um, whereas in this, maybe, yeah, there's, there's in the text, there's a bit more of a disparity between them um, in the way they've done it. Um which I guess maybe just shows they don't want to have they they want to have like the hottest person be the lead, which I guess is standard. <laughs> yeah, no, which is standard, which is fine. Movie thing. But like, yeah, I don't know. I just kind of felt like uh, I just felt for me trying to map it onto Pride and Prejudice. Just mm, I don't know. Just kind of created a lot of issues that didn't need to be there for me. But I mean, I I love like a modern Austen adaptation. Um, I mean, I kind yeah, I th- I agree with you. I feel like Pride and Prejudice has kind of been done to death, but I'm you know totally up for seeing a, like queer versions of it. I just kind of felt like this. I just felt like taking that as the blueprint didn't do the film any favors, and the elements of the film that were kind of separate from that were the more successful ones for me. Um, but yeah, I I think other than that one aspect of it i think we're broadly in agreement that it's kind of pretty lightweight and a bit disposable but still like perfectly enjoyable and serviceable and um like a kind of decent rom-com yeah and i think uh, i mean the pride and prejudice thing it's a bit silly but i think i was going in expecting it to be to not work so much that mm. as in I was like, how are they going to make this a parallel to like the way that gays are now is it's so different in terms of how Darcy and Elizabeth is not not in just the, the 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 time since the novel was written, but even just in the ways that gay guys relate to each other is is quite specific as well. Like I feel like it would mm. be easier to make a modern version of Pride and Prejudice you know, for us with a straight couple than it is for a gay couple as well. So it's so so then then as the as the film went on and it was like kind of going over the beats, I was like, oh, okay, I can yeah, I, I I still kind of believe it, even though, you know, it's a bit shoehorned in, but I'm still kind of believing in the characters. It doesn't feel as awkward as, as I was expecting. Um but yeah, it's not I don't I don't need I don't need a load more of these sort of um, rom-coms trying to do Jane Austen again. Um, that's going to be <laughs> well, really, I don't know. really clever like, about it. I'm not, I'm not against them in principle. I just kind of felt like, uh, I don't know. I just felt like trying to do it over a week. It just really didn't work for me. And mm. eh, I don't know. And also, yeah, again, like Pride and Prejudice being the one that's been done a million times, you know. Um, yeah. But yeah, I guess it was kind of a question of expectations, um, it sounds like you went in with lower expectations than I did, which maybe 
you know, so you um, were more pleasantly surprised. Whereas I was, I kind of went I, and... I feel, yeah, I feel like my expectations were, were met with what it was. It's just, I was expecting specifically the Pride and Prejudice thing to bother me more than it did. Um, right. And to like, you know, I kind of like rolled my eyes a bit when I, when I read that that was like sort of the premise. Um, but then when I watched it, I was like, okay, that's okay. Um, and yeah. And there was also just this, uh, just my one sort of problem I had with it, um, which mm. isn't really related to this, um, which makes me sound really prudish potentially, is the, <laughs> the, 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 in addition to the way it feels like it is torn between kind of catering to more of a straight audience and kind of being quite sort of, um, you know, in jokey in ways that like gay men would understand. Um, it also feels like it's in some ways quite polite and in other ways quite not, particularly when it came to the drug use. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, I, it's, and I think I, because I thought it's very, it's very honest that, you know, the gays who go to Fire Island are going to be on drugs most of the time. Um, but I particularly did not like this. This <laughs> I did not like the way it portrayed G um, because it kind of... Is that like, the Lydia character? No, sorry. Oh, no, sorry. G, G the drug. Uh, like G. Oh, sorry. I was just kind of like... <laughs> sorry. I was just kind of like, shit, I can't remember any of these characters' names. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> Um, so it like goes through all these drugs that they're taking and they're like, oh, it's ketamine, it's a horse tranquilizer, and then it's and here's G and blah blah blah. And then um and then later one of them is like kind of half sort of collapsing because they're on G. Mm. Uh and he's like, Oh, and G makes you go like that. Uh it's kind of like a bit of a throwaway sort of line. Um mm. and then later there's a bit where that that guy is kind of secretly filmed having sex with someone who puts it on his only fans yes. account and there's a whole thing. How to check. So I don't know if that was the same night and you can make the connection between the fact that he was probably on G when that happened. I don't know, but you know, G is like quite a deadly drug that has had quite a, um, a devastating effect on, well, definitely London and I'm assuming New York's mm. gay scene in terms of how many people die on it. Um, right. And how the, the, that those sort of, effects that they were kind of laughing off like when right. that gets more extreme and when people are drinking they they you know they pass out and they die and it's a it's a whole thing uh, a lot of people have died on it so I, I i i found that like i don't want to say irresponsible but a little bit irresponsible and it makes me i feel no, like that no, makes totally. me sound really prudish um because no, no, because i don't have problem with with drug use and other the other you know and and i feel like it's an exception like you know they wouldn't talk about like that with like heroin or probably crystal sure. meth like though and yeah. for me like g g is a lot more commonly used than those drugs and when it doesn't go wrong you know a, seemingly a lot less hardcore but actually one of the most deadly ones and i feel like that that was just a specific thing that annoyed me about the film no, I get that. It's really interesting because actually my associations with it would mostly be less as a party drug and more as like a date rate drug, like historically. Yeah. That would kind yes. of be what my associations would be. 
Um, so no, that totally makes sense. I thought you were going to say something completely different though, which was going to be another thing we were going to disagree on because there is a line in the film that I really liked, which is when it's either like the Kitty or the Lydia. And again, I'm sorry, I don't know their real names, but, um, uh, takes a pill off the floor (laughs) and then is worried that they're going to die. Um, and there was just kind of like, I forgot uh, about that. Yeah, I mean, I I just I feel I felt like there was this kind of um, sort of uh, vaguely nihilistic kind of mentally ill um, sort of uh, attitude going on there that I just <laughs> just really resonated with me. Where it's kind of like, yeah, sometimes you are just like, fuck it, I'll just take this pill that I found on the floor. And then you realize what you've done and you're like, shit. Um, so so that was a moment that I, that's probably my favorite moment in the movie. And I thought that was what you were going to be uh, talking I about. I totally, I um, totally forgot. Was it the, it was, so it was one of, yeah, I totally forgot about that. And I mean, that's just not that realistic because when you're in Fire Island, you don't have any shortage of, you know, you could just ask the person next to you if you want a pill and they'll probably will have one. Uh, you don't have to resort to like picking one up from, from the floor. Um, okay, that's fair. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. It, it, it's, I, I just think it's, um, it's, a, it's a moment in the film that feels awkward to me because some of it feels quite smart and quite well observed to then have another mm. bit that just seems a little bit dumb and a little bit like yeah. not not very considered. Yeah, I mean I I have to be honest, you know, I didn't I really didn't pick up on that uh while I was watching and it hadn't stayed in my memory at all, but now that you say it it does make a lot of sense and um yeah, I guess it's just not the kind of movie that wants to engage necessarily with anything too dark. Um, but in which case, yeah, it's kind of maybe trying to eat its cake and have it by, you know, uh, because you need to have the Wickham character do something really evil for the story Mm. to work. Um, and you know, like, I, I think they do pull that off in, you know, kind of the, the OnlyFans stuff, but uh, yeah, it's, it it really doesn't yeah, really delve was... too deeply into um, anything. Yeah, anything. Yeah, the the kind of the, the 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 darkest and most traumatic versions of those sort of things that you could have. It exactly. doesn't. But but yeah. But I guess that's that's an example of of me thinking. I'm like, you know, what what is the bad thing that the the Wickham character can do? And I'm like, well, that is actually quite a specific and realistic sort of thing that. Yes. You know an evil hot gay man might do on fire island so uh... <laughs> yeah no i i do i do think that element of it does work um but um but yeah no you're right i i think maybe that that side of it is a little bit misjudged in terms of the portrayal of drug use um i i mean i do like that it's kind of non-judgmental and like not hysterical about drug about party drug use but yeah you're right like that you don't necessarily want yeah. to kind of because to be honest treat them all if, the same yeah to be honest if one of them had then like died on g i probably would have been a bit oh, like yeah. 
<laughs> I would have had, then also had a problem with the fact that it was feeling yeah. like luxury about it. So um, yeah. it's a difficult line to to, to tread. Um, well, yeah, but maybe but... you just don't need to like go through every single drug and its effects in a kind of yeah. catalog scene, you know, like yeah. that's maybe yeah. not necessary. Very um, true. Um, but, yeah. but anyway, I thought it was, I thought it was fine. I liked it more than bros. Did you like it more than bros? I did like it more than bros. Well, yes and no. <laughs> um, so I came out of bros with a reaction that I have not seen anybody else have, which makes me think that maybe I'm just insane. But I kind of felt like it was biphobic because I felt like the Jim Rash character was the butt of the joke more than anybody else you know there's kind of like jokes at the expense of everyone to a degree but i felt like the jim rash character it seemed more excessive and i don't know if that's just me being hypersensitive and uh, i don't know like maybe being in a weird mood on the day that i saw it or i don't know what but that was a big part of my experience with it that really coloured it. Can you tell me more about that? Because I'm trying to remember the references to bisexuality. And it's to do with the museum curation, the arguing over... Yes. Is it the Abraham Lincoln thing? Yeah, that's the main thing. It's just kind of a running gag that the Jim Rash character will say that some historical figure was bisexual and Billy Eichner will get pissed off with him about it. Um, and, you know, like, I, I understand that the Billy Eichner character is not necessarily supposed to be this kind of, like, flawless guy who's always right about everything either, but he is very much the point-of-view character. And it just kind of felt like that was an attitude that was expressed far more towards the Jim Rash character than it was to any of the other kind of members of the board to me mm -hmm. um and you know towards the end you find out that um that character has like a female partner which again like obviously you know completely legitimate thing for a bisexual man to have um but it just kind of i don't know it it felt it felt a little bit dismissive to me. Mm. Um, and I, I like, it, again, I really don't know if this is just me being way too sensitive and it's entirely possible that it is, but that was just a big part of, of how I ended up feeling about it. Mm. That is hard for me to kind of separate out um, but I don't know. I think for me, the film had a lot of the same issues that I think Nicholas Stoller films have in general, which is that they're kind of always about some neurotic guy um, whose problems are almost entirely self-inflicted and they're always like two and a half hours long and undisciplined and kind of feel like a series of bits that don't always mm. necessarily have like a strong emotional through line yeah um so that's kind of that that was essentially how i felt about it 
I felt like it was less than the sum of its parts because some of the parts were good, um, but that ultimately it was just let down by being like way too baggy and undisciplined and maybe focusing too much on the Billy Eichner character to the expense of the relate the central relationship as well. Mm. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I didn't think that when watching it about the bisexuality, but I can so- I can see what you mean by it. I, I feel like it's sort of it's slightly making fun of the whole film has a tone of it with with because obviously Billy Eichner stars in it and he wrote it where it does feel like the film is kind of taking the piss out of and criticizing with some more serious ways himself but also kind of making fun of like the gay community in a way and his job because they're kind of always having these slightly silly arguments and um yeah you know it's kind of it's kind of getting a lot of humor from that but I could I can sort of see what you mean that maybe it kind of rags on that particular one a bit too much and that maybe that's seen as well, it's just the, like... more, the more acceptable thing to keep making fun of whereas maybe if it was yeah uh, I don't know a trans person or something it might feel like you know we can't do that because do you know what I mean as in yeah, because and I think because, because that's like... less acceptable I don't know Definitely. And and I also just kind of think, you know, yes, absolutely. He's making fun of elements of the gay community, but there's a bunch of gay guys in the movie, you know, to like represent different aspects of the community. Um, and it's very much from like a gay cis male perspective and very much about that aspect of queer culture. And you have one bisexual character kind of representing the whole community or not really representing but anyway and that kind of the butt of the joke it felt like to me and I I think that was the element of it that I found uncomfortable whereas like you know if there were multiple bisexual characters and it was less one note you know that would be a different thing um but because it was like one character played by Jim Rash who I don't think I don't think Jim Rash is bisexual in real life either uh i could be wrong but i'm pretty sure he's gay uh Mm. which is fine you know not that there's anything wrong with that but um (laughs) but you know like i don't know i just it it, i just didn't like it yeah i just didn't Mm. like it um like obviously that's kind of a minor part of the movie but it it i couldn't help but let that sort of influence my feelings about it Mm. But, you know, even putting that aside, I did just, yeah, I felt that, I think the thing is, well, for one thing, I think the, obviously, kind of Billy Eichner's whole um, approach to selling this movie, I think, put a lot of weight on its shoulders in a way that I think didn't end up serving the film. Um, because it ended up being this kind of, um, it ended up being about like representation, you know, this is, Mm -hmm. this is the historical first gay rom-com with uh, all the gay people in it and that's mainstream Mm -hmm. and that got a theatrical release because there have been gay rom-coms before but this is the one that's doing it first in these ways yeah you know well it's it's basically saying it's the one that has like the most money behind it but the thing Mm -hmm. is like you don't really 
need a lot of money to make a good rom-com that yes. traditionally traditionally you would because you've got really famous stars in it and they need to get paid and obviously the great rom-coms of the 90s or whatever were quite glossy like you know they were had top tier talent behind the camera directors who all got mm. paid very well and the film obviously has a, a gloss to it that something like jeffrey is not going to have but i think that like the writing the performances the characters are like just so key in making a good rom-com and they are what is kind of missing here like for Mm. me there is that the film itself like uh i i think i saw forgetting sarah marshall and getting to the greek and i don't remember liking them that much Mm. and so but but i think what you're saying about nicholas dollar might be correct is that like the best rom-coms have a real like rhythm to them like they're Mm. snappy like the dialogue sings they're fast paced like yes you know where it's going but it kind of like it just hits those beats whereas this like you said it just felt bitty to me Mm. and like you know there are scenes that you can imagine you know being on like the deleted scenes reel of a dvd or something and then you end up with a film that's actually slightly less than two hours long but feels like it's more than two hours long where most of these most of these films need to be like an hour and a half to an hour and 40 i remembered it being like two hours 20 in my mind it was two hours 20 but um (laughs) but yeah but yeah that's you know i i take the point it is definitely too long and i don't think it is well directed but Mm. you've also got like the writing and Billy Eichner, which is kind of like one and the same problem, which is that I like that he's trying to, I I like the um, the boldness of going with this character who is a specific type of gay man who is not kind of straight friendly and mm. is, you know, very neurotic and very flawed and the film takes pains to point that out. Like it's not kind of, glorifying him in any way um but he is just for me very annoying (laughs) he you know and and it's very different and there are there are plenty of rom-coms like i'd say think of something like my best friend's wedding where Mm. julia roberts in that film is fundamentally maybe evil but you kind of you go with it because it's julia roberts and because she has some sort of charisma or ability to make this character funny, kind of likable, uh, and completely charming. So you kind of, you laugh with her and you go with it. And so, whereas this guy, you know, he's not Julia Roberts. And so he just ends up being kind of awful. And it's, it, you know, the scene where he, um, like the dinner table scene with the family, mm. um, what is it is it that he outs no he's he's like very you know over what does he say in front of the family he he's like very over the top i think he makes uh, he kind of accuses them of forcing their son into this kind of like mask box the 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 thing with the guy with the love interest is that he Mm -hmm. wants to be a chocolatier um Mm -hmm. but he is worried about not being mask enough right Mm -hmm. And I think that that is like the crux of the conflict in that scene is Billy Eichner being kind of like, he hates his job. He doesn't even want to do that job. And But you've raised him to feel like he has to live up to your standards of masculinity, yeah. something like that. 
he's just he's just very he's just he's just awful like i would i just feel like that's just I, and i know that you know the his whole thing is that you know he tells it like it is he doesn't bullshit and like that's kind of like supposedly the flaw and the um you know the sort of admirable thing about him mm. but i i just it's just basic just it's just kind of mean and i just don't mm. think um i just don't i don't really feel like there was much coming back from that like that's that's him at his worst um and yeah I know he does apologize for it and everything but by that point I'm like Luke McFarlane should be running a mile from this guy <laughs> and so I just completely lost any investment in them ultimately getting together yeah um, and I also and felt I like actually, they weren't compatible yeah. I didn't feel like they were yeah. compatible at all like and I it, it was trying to do a, you know an opposites attract learning from each other thing but again like and it's fundamentally it's the Billy Eichner character's problem because I don't I think that yeah I just I just don't I don't I don't get it but I will say I did quite like Luke McFarlane in it and I sure. found his character actually the more interesting the more, the more sympathetic one mm. um and I think that the the something it tried to do which it was sometimes successfully at was this idea of like building your this kind of image of yourself up as a certain type of person and then kind yeah. of not really letting that go or kind yes. of letting letting that get in the way of like forming a real connection with someone and this whole idea that you know oh this guy's really hot so therefore he's really boring um or or therefore he's not into me or therefore mm. he's super confident and blah, blah, blah. like that is that that is something that like I see all the time. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, loads of people, not just gay people. And I thought that was that felt to me like I liked that. I thought that was sort of well observed and interesting. But maybe so, if we'd followed Luke McFarlane's character more mm, and Billy Eichner's character less, that would have mm, been stronger, and there would have been like a more of a kind of strong emotional core to the film. Yeah. Because I actually think his journey is a lot more compelling. Yeah. Whereas he kind of gets sidelined quite a lot by the narrative. And actually, like, there are huge chunks of the film that he's barely in at all Mm. um, because it's following Billy Eichner and his various, like, adventures or, like, self destructive um, whims or whatever he's doing. Um, And again, I think this is a Nicholas Stoller. I'm doing it again. I'm doing it the German way. Nicholas Stoller thing, where his movies are less about relationships and more about this one central character, um, like going through an emotional journey where the love interest is kind of semi-incidental. Like I mm. definitely think that's true for Getting Sarah Marshall, where mm. I think like the Mila Kunis character is very thin. Um mm. Whereas really it's because I watched it recently, like it's very much more about the Jason Siegel character. And mm. a lot of people love that movie. But mm. for me, that character is not as interesting as the film thinks he is. And I think this mm. one has the same problem. Yeah. And get him to the Greek is even worse because fucking poor Elizabeth. Again, I watched this very recently. Um, like Elizabeth Moss does nothing wrong in that movie. <laughs> And she's with this guy, like this Jonah Hill character, who's the worst 
guy he's terrible it's and it's just kind of like and we're following him and it's just kind of like i don't care about him or like him at all and i Mm. don't understand why i should be rooting for elizabeth moss to get back together with him like she should find somebody who you know doesn't hate her uh so yeah it's bizarre but uh, yeah so mm. i do kind of think this is like generally like a nicholas dollar movie problem but of course you know he didn't write it mm. um i don't know there, there were certainly moments that i did like one of the things that was in the trailer that made me really excited for the movie was that kind of speech that billy eichner gives at a certain point i think he's on like a podcast wow a podcast <laughs> uh, <laughs> um and he's kind of saying He's kind of talking about, like, how, you know, he hates the whole love is love thing because actually, you know, the experience of love for gay men is very different than it is for, you know, kind of straight people and a kind of more heteronormative take on love and that that whole idea is kind of I don't think he uses the term respectability politics but that's essentially what he's saying you know and I was like yeah no I you know I I can get on board with this this is a kind of anti-assimilationist message and it's interesting Mm. but I don't think the film really ends up backing that up um no I mean it has a frankness to the sexuality in places and mm. you know they have a threesome and you know there's there's a lot less riding on like a kind of monogamous sexual relationship between them and that you would get in a kind of traditional heterosexual whatever rom-com but that's um, still the end only... game right well yes maybe although i don't know if they really talk about monogamy or no at the end do they can't remember if that's aaron's thing um but they obviously have a threesome in the middle and it so it feels a bit less like and, and it's kind of like a whatever thing it's not like mm. it doesn't make a big deal because and that is kind of quite honest um but yeah i don't know if maybe because it it obviously it has these that moments like that which feel um potentially quite radical but it can't quite square that with the the kind of traditional rom-com bits that it's trying to do and then ends up kind of like not really succeeding at either thing yeah and i actually think fire island does that a lot better Mm. um you know in terms of kind of having this I mean, again, it's interesting with Fire Island because actually the the central relationship there is more of the kind of um, Jane Bingley, the bow and mm. yang and Chuck or whatever. Um, mm. <laughs> I probably should have reminded myself of people's names, but it's fine. Um, but that that kind they kind of make that the central thing, and they make the kind of um, Lizzie Darcy thing a little bit more of a a side relationship and they have mm. that conversation at the end where he's kind of like I'm not really that into monogamy and it's like okay whatever <laughs> you know mm. and I, I like that it allows for that where it's I feel like bros is trying to do that by having the character who's just kind of like you know he's like a perennially single party guy and he's enjoying that life and you know and that's kind of treated as like valid and fine but ultimately the sort of emotional arc of the film is Billy Eichner getting over himself to the point where he can have a traditional romantic relationship, it felt like to me. So I feel like it kind of ends up undercutting this idea that, 
hey, you know, like if you're not interested in a traditional relationship, if you're not interested in monogamy, that's all good. Because actually it kind of feels like that's almost a character flaw that he has to overcome is that attitude Mm -hmm. so that he can have his kind of happy ending uh with luke mcfarlane who again like i feel like his emotional journey is much more compelling but is very much sidelined so i i didn't feel i felt like bros was kind of trying to like tip its hat to oh non-traditional relationships are cool too but Mm -hmm. didn't really end up paying that off for me Mm -hmm. yeah no i can see that um and it kind of i mean this thing about both of them is i don't think either of them were funny enough but yeah. I thought Bros was less fu- Bros failed at its attempts to be funny more often. Um, mm. it, it just, some of the humor was a bit too broad. Some of it was mm. just a bit too like sort of knowing, but not very witty. I feel like, I, I don't know if I, my sense of humor is just getting more specific or getting worse, or I used <laughs> to find things more funny or less funny. But I find it with lots of comedies these days as I just find sometimes they're just a bit too knowing and they're kind of like they're making a sort of they're kind of making fun of wokeness while kind of being woke but kind of not doing anything witty with it they're just kind of like point pointing a thing out and then kind of laughing and it's like okay uh, I just don't I don't really get it and like for example that scene where like Deborah Messing comes on oh my like, god yes begin- I wanted to talk begin- about the, that the concept of the scene is funny but then to have Deborah Messing like explain the joke kind of yeah. in her sort of rant stopped it being funny like as in we know this is funny because they think that she's the character from Will and Grace we don't have to her her say I am not my character in this extended rant um yeah so just like the timing I guess yeah I found that scene really baffling I was just kind of like what's going on (laughs) I I don't even know if I found the central joke particularly funny to be honest I was just kind of like why why is this a a big beat in this movie Like, it really feels like it's played as this kind of almost, like, cathartic learning moment for the Billy Eichner character, where he's supposed to, like, learn something or realise something in this moment. And I was like, is the thing that he's supposed to learn that Deborah Messing is not Grace? I don't get it. (laughs) I don't get it. Because in, in terms of, like, structurally where it comes in the film as well, it feels like it should be this moment of him... Um, like a, a kind of transitional moment for him where he has some kind of character realisation that leads to growth mm. but but what it is is just Deborah Messing screaming at him that she's not Grace and I was mm. just like I don't get this um, yeah I found that really odd yeah have you ever seen the other two? I have yes I ha- I'm not caught up on it I think I only ever saw maybe the first season um, I think that season one is the only one that's on like all four or something and I right. don't know if the other two have actually been streaming in the UK maybe they're on now TV or something it's good I mean the second season is really good and the third season is currently on it's not quite as good as the second but there are quite a lot of recurring Deborah Messing jokes which are oh, right. freshly in my mind um like there's all like you know there's often like they'll read like a, a sort of kind of a funny earnest sort of tweet um 
and it's like from Deborah Messing or something. Oh, like, but from that's your so friend real. Deborah Messing, which but is quite that's funny. So much more real than yeah. just like, oh, people mistake me for Grace and Will and Grace, which I don't know. I mean, maybe that is a thing that she goes through, but that's not very relatable for but me. It's, whereas, it's also, like, it's a bit more specific as to Deborah Messing's social media presence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, as opposed to just like Will and Grace. But um, I guess the thing is though that I, I Will and Grace is, is a clear sort of touchstone in gay representation to Billy Eichner's generations so I guess that's what I mean by I'm like you know having Deborah Messing in it and having there be a joke around that is something that like I am kind of on board with it's just kind of this is not it (laughs) yes 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 totally I get that well I don't know I mean I I feel like well what are we saying that Billy Eichner is a different generation than us I don't know exactly how old he is but for sure, like Will and Grace was big for me as well, mm. um, and I, I feel like it was for you too, right? Yeah, I, I loved Will and Grace as a. Okay. Well, I didn't actually watch it to the end, but like the first four or five seasons, I was quite into. And We're it was so the- Will and Grace. <laughs> That's so us. Um, and if uh, we have kids, they should get married. Does that happen? Yeah, that was like the end of Will and Grace was that they had a big fight and they didn't speak for like 20 years. And then his son and her daughter met at university. They're in like the same halls and it was love at first sight. Mm. And then obviously in the reboot, they were like, we're not doing that. (laughs) Yeah, I never actually finished the reboot, even though I did find it like fairly enjoyably. Yeah, same. When I started watching it, Um, although I feel like it then got overshadowed by the supposed feud between uh, Deborah Messing and Megan Mullally by the end. So. um, Oh, that totally passed me by. I did not know about that. Tell me, tell me. Spill. No, I know there's there is. It's just apparently they had massive. They had a massive falling out, and and Megan Mullally was not in like a few episodes, and apparently it was because of that, and they wouldn't speak to each other on set. Uh, lots of like you know so I think there was even something the other day where she was on a panel Deborah Messing and she was like with Sean Hayes and Eric McCormack only and it was like the three of them and she's like you know oh these these two like friends for like you know like that sort of like sort right. of sort of not acknowledging that there's a fourth person in the class very and just like you. that yeah anyway. I didn't I didn't carry on with it just because I, there was something very comforting about it when it first started where it was just kind of like it, it really did just kind of feel like you know like a, a warm blanket and a cup of cocoa but at a certain point like there's diminishing returns there because it is just the same old thing yeah. um and ultimately that didn't kind of keep my attention Mm. um but but no when it did first when the reboot first came out it was kind of like oh this is such a throwback and and there's something really lovely about that but yeah mm. um oh did you ever watch Shit's Creek yes so what was your okay so there's a scene in Bros as I'm sure you remember where they have a big fight about Shit's Creek because Billy Eichner doesn't like it everybody else does um and what was weird about that for me was that it was so reminiscent. I don't know how like much of Community you watched or remember. I know you've seen some of it. I but watched this, the whole this... of Community, but I don't oh, remember right. it that well. So there's a Valentine's Day episode where um, Jeff gets into a big fight with everybody about the bare naked ladies. 
Mm. Um, like they have this big blowout fight because he hates the bare naked ladies and they all love the bare naked ladies. Um, so he's just kind of like, screw you guys, um, and kind of isolates himself from them. And that scene in Bros was so reminiscent of that. And I was kind of like, you've got Jim Rash there as well. Like, is this a deliberate? It doesn't feel like it's a reference, but it felt so much like that. But anyway, the whole Shit's Creek thing, I found that really odd. I was kind of like, whose side are we supposed to be on here? Because I like Shit's Creek, you know? I mean, I get that it's kind of earnest and a little bit sanitized. I wasn't super invested in the love story. But, you know, I basically think it's it's a a successful charming show. Mm. And he never really explains even what it is that he doesn't like about it. I was just kind of like uh, I I can't I can't quite tell whose side I'm supposed to be on with this or like what the point is that he's making. Did you kind of make anything of that? I can't quite remember the scene, um, but I do remember, like, I it does, I feel like there, I do recognise there were quite a lot of arguments as to, like, how good Shit's Creek was, because <laughs> it did have a kind of a slow burn thing, and then I feel like loads of people watched it, started watching it over the pandemic, who hadn't yes. been watching it originally, and then there was a whole sort of, like, oh, I don't see what the fuss of all this is about that everyone's been telling me is so funny, it's not that funny. And then there's, there's a whole, oh, you have to watch it. But it doesn't get good until like you know, season two or three. And then there's like big arguments about that. You know, ultimately, I thought Shit's Creek was kind of charming. I didn't mm. find it like super laugh out loud funny that often. And, you know, it was just like, it wasn't super funny or super witty, but it was, it was kind of cute. It was kind of sweet. And um, I think that it's, a few of the characters were occasionally quite funny. I, I guess I found the straight male characters not that funny, but the other characters quite funny. Um, so I, I, there I guess there aren't that many more... straight male characters in it, though, okay. right? No, Ro- Roland and uh, Eugene Levy, I don't find that funny. Whereas uh, the siblings and um, Moira, Moira, I, I do find funny. Um, but uh, so for me, I, I wasn't really thinking about the whether or not Shit's Creek is good or whether it was trying to say whether Shit's Creek was good. It was more... Like a comment on, on the discourse? Yeah, commenting on the discourse rather yeah. than Shit's Creek itself. I'm curious as to whether Billy Eichner does like Shit's Creek in real life. Um, well, see, this is the thing that I... This kind of gets at something else that I kind of wanted to talk about, um, which is... I guess this idea of like queer authenticity. So I want to bring in something else now and it's probably going to seem like a total non sequitur, but I'm I'm going to try and tie it together. So bear with me. So Casper Salmon was on this episode of Screenshot where he was talking about gay rom-coms. Mm-hmm. And part of the conversation, they were talking about Last Christmas Um, which obviously is not a gay rom-com, but like there's the George Michael connection, right? Mm -hmm. And he brought up this thing where he was saying, well, of course, George Michael was into cottaging, Mm -hmm. which I think a lot of straight people find shocking because they're not into that. And I think the point he was trying to make was maybe about kind of like gay sexuality being like sanitized in mainstream culture or something. But I found it a little bit odd because I was like, well, 
Okay, straight people don't do cottaging because they would have to do it in unisex toilets and there aren't that many. (laughs) But, like, straight people do dogging and they have sex in club toilets and they, like, do other stuff that's kind of comparable. And you know who doesn't do cottaging? Lesbians, you know? Mm. Like, the... So I kind of feel like this idea of, like, this authenticity of queer experience often becomes about quite actually a one facet of queer experience which is the cis male gay urban queer experience which absolutely is an important facet of that but is only one facet it doesn't necessarily represent the experiences of women and trans people and people who are like multiply marginalized in other ways and rural queers, you know, who do mm. exist. Mm. So I kind of, so maybe this is a huge stretch, but I wondered if the, the whole Shit's Creek thing was kind of like, oh, well, you know, it's not authentic because it's set in a rural area and it doesn't kind of represent queerness in X way. Mm. Whereas I feel like that's actually a very narrow idea of of queer experience. And I kind of felt like that was present to a degree both in Fire Island um, and in Bros was very much this kind of idea of like, and yeah, you know, absolutely like Fire Island had Asian leads and it did kind of bring in the the kind of racism within the gay community, which obviously is like a very kind of valid subject. But it was still very much kind of like um, we're New York cis gay men who love to party and this is our experience. Mm. And I just kind of feel like that can sometimes be... um, You can sometimes feel like that is the um, only variation of queer experience that is kind of accepted as authentic does that make sense or am I yeah I I I think that I think for me it's kind of like you know because Schitt's Creek is liked by a lot of straight people and because you know it's not particularly um rude or anything (laughs) and yes it's set in you know an urban area where there's not as many gay people in it and you know the the love story ultimately is fairly basic although although the, the, before before that he there's the other thing where he's dating the bisexual guy who who dates who dates stevie? both him and his friend. yeah who, who da- no well yeah no so he's bisexual he dates stevie but then there's there's that other guy who dates both of them yeah no well, so this i think is... all of all of that stuff i don't think i think that is actually quite unusual but i think no, the point and I'm I, making... I loved the stuff with stevie i thought that yeah. was so much more compelling and again it's kind of like it's so rare to see a an effeminate bisexual guy um mm. on tv and b like a bisexual guy dating a woman on tv um not that you see a lot of bisexual guys full stop but like I felt both of those were kind of unusual and I really loved to see it. And then it kind of turned into just this quite by numbers gay love story to me, mm-hmm. which I found less interesting. But yeah. I think I mean, I mean, I found the, the gay love story kind of cute enough, but it's more I think the point that I'm making is that it's kind of if it's if it's, you know, 
more straight friendly therefore it is not authentic or it's not an authentic portrayal mm. of gay people so then the reaction against that is to be like oh it's partying and it's drugs and it's lots of casual sex and that's yeah. the real authentic gay car and it's like like you said like actually both both of these do represent like particular gay people in particular gay places yeah. uh, and it's not just you know you know, some people, some gay people do live lives that are that you could portray them and would be very, you know, straight friendly uh, in inverted but commas. You know what also, I mean? Also, but also, okay. So there's this show, Work in Progress. I think I've mentioned it to you before, um, which I think is both very, very queer, but also is not about like partying and taking drugs. You know um it's about um a kind of uh it's well she's how does she describe herself i think she describes herself as a bisexual dyke mm-hmm. and she's gender fluid um she's dating a trans guy in the first season um but you know it, it's very much about a kind of queer experience that is very separate from the whole kind of like nightlife party drugs element of that it's kind of like the you know like the hannah gadsby line um where she says i'm more of a quiet gay mm. um you know it's much more like that but it's mm. still not necessarily you know packaged to be palatable to a straight audience because it's still very much about a kind of queer experience and mm. you know queer community just outside of that very specific aspect of it and i would say mm. the same about something like feel good as well which i really like um and even so i mean we're getting away from rom-coms now um although these do have relationships in them but something mm. like can you ever forgive me um mm. you know or pain and glory and i would say that those are kind of the queer stories that really resonate with me or i feel like they very much are sort of about queerness but not about mm, this one particular kind of experience of queerness that is very I don't know I kind of I want to call it like the dominant culture within within queer experience if that makes sense Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. um I'm kind of getting off topic but but yeah I don't know I just I just kind of feel like these two rom-coms in particular and possibly Jeffrey as well um which we still need to talk about I really want to talk about um are kind of uh, promoting maybe quite a monolithic idea of what the gay experience is like mm. um that is i think should be represented but should not be represented kind of exclusively as the queer um mm. authentic experience i guess yeah. um tell me if i've gone like way too off topic no now. i think Sorry. that does make i think that does make sense but i think yeah i think for me it's kind of like if the films were more successful at what they were trying to do, I probably wouldn't think so much about the way that they're, the ways in which their representation slightly annoys me. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I would I would think about those things, but I think that um, to some extent, I 
I'm like, okay, you want to do this like studio rom-com gay thing. It's like the first of its type. So I understand that there are certain things, there are certain beats you're going to hit that are going to be like a bit more, that, you know, I might bris- bristle against the politics mm. of it, but I'm just going to go with it because I, it's the first of its thing and it's this mm. sort of film and blah, blah, blah. So, but if it's not actually succeeding in doing that, then the fact that it's not either of those things also annoys me. Yeah. I think yeah. I think ultimately the problem is this expectation placed on these films that they're gonna that they've just taken way too much weight. I think particularly mm. Bros with like the way that um, Eichner decided to promote it. I don't is, understand the way the way I just it's so weird the way that they the, the the marketing was kind of done in this like this isn't the straight people way and it's kind of like well and then straight people you, didn't come and they were yeah, like and, fucking dogs yeah <laughs> and you know, if you're putting that much money into a theater i mean putting that much money into a theatrical release of this sort anyway even if it was like a straight rom-com like people do not really go to the cinemas to yeah. watch rom-coms anymore and so we're not in a golden era of rom-coms full stop you know so um let alone with you know which doesn't even have like a movie star in it like it's mm. just just kind of from universal's perspective a, a bit ridiculous yeah. um but but then to also have it sort of be oh it's also not really for straight people as well it's just like i just feel like every decision made in the marketing of that was just a bit weird yeah uh, yeah i definitely feel like there were missteps there but it also put so much fucking pressure on this one film to be the mm. definitive gay rom-com and no one media product is ever going to like definitively describe uh, queerness or even gayness because it's not monolithic you know and I and I feel like that I I understand why they kind of wanted to play up the historicalness of it but I, I ultimately I think it was a mistake and I think it yeah it, it just didn't serve the film but yeah. Um, we haven't talked about Jeffrey at all yet, and I yes. really want to get on to talking about Jeffrey. So, and I also uh, feel like I've been dominating the conversation a little bit, and I want to hear all your thoughts about Jeffrey. So, please take it away. Um, I mean, I only just saw Jeffrey, so I, I, what I think? what's weird about this film is that I feel like I only heard about it in the last couple of years through it being mentioned on Letterboxd or something. You know, one of those random films you jump on the Letterboxd and you're like, mm. oh it's got Patrick Stewart in it and it's a gay film from the 90s because when I was a teenager I would be seeking out films like this the sort of the, the films made in that 90s early 2000s that were like you know maybe not quite straight to DVD but you know low budget indie sort of gay films like Beautiful Thing and Get Real and Big Edge Eden of 17 did you Edge see that 17, one yeah Latter Days oh my uh, god Latter Days <laughs> I love that's a whole other podcast. Latter, I mean, very uh, wrong. there's a lot wrong with Latter Days, yeah. but there's uh, um, something about it. So I'm surprised that I didn't kind of stumble across it in that era, especially considering mm. I'm a massive Star Trek fan and it's got Patrick Stewart in it, as well as randomly, because it's got so many cameos and there's like a single scene cameo of the guy who plays Neelix in Star Trek Voyager talking about how he is a com- someone who's a compulsive sex addict that's Neelix 14 inch long penis and yes. <laughs> yes that's Neelix also the main the main guy also guest starred in Star Trek Deep Space Nine for an episode once um, which I think is where I know his face from because I've seen him in a few things he's been yeah um, he's been in quite a few things yeah um uh anyway um it's weird i thought it was 
okay. I found it interesting as a time capsule in a number of ways. And I, but I think when watching it, I kind of flitted between watching scenes where I was like, I like this scene. Mm. You know, I like the characters. It feels, you know, I'm feeling emotionally drawn into it. And then it would go to another scene where I was like, no, I'm not into this. As in like, it's the humor is too broad. Yeah. Or, and I think most of that comes in the kind of the breaking of the fourth wall bits and these kind of, um, you know, sort of cutaway comedy segments and people almost these sort of confessional bits which I feel like betray the sort of stage origins of the film a little bit definitely I think you definitely can tell it was a play exactly yeah also do feel quite 90s in the way it tries to be sort of a bit meta but that just hasn't the humor just hasn't quite aged that well and and for me kind of was like stalling the pacing because I was like kind of getting more invested in like the characters and wanting more of them. And then we kind of had these sort of cutaways and I was mm. kind of into it. Um, and I also thought that the the romance between them was a bit too quick in the way that he was yes. all, already talking about like, I was already always talking about they'd gone through like a bunch of dating before finding out that he was HIV positive where actually he hadn't. Just to set up the, yeah. So Jeffrey made in 1995 based on a play um written by and i found this interesting it's written by um the in and out guy well i haven't seen that oh okay that's only just come up paul rudnick who Mm -hmm. wrote sister act and the adams family values which yes very gay friendly uh (laughs) films as in uh, i was very into both of those films as a small child um but um yeah about um a guy who decides he's going to go celibate because um the HIV pandemic has gotten would you say pandemic um yeah I think it was a pandemic yeah he decides to go sell he decides to become celibate because he's very worried about uh contracting HIV and the kind of panic that goes into sex he thinks it's ruining sex for him so he's going to just not have sex then he meets this guy he falls for and finds out he's HIV positive and there's a whole thing where he's like oh no I'm not having sex I'm not dating anyone and uh this other guy kind of is trying to kind of convince him that they could have something special and then he decides to go with it then he finds out he's HIV positive and then he kind of thinks he's going to be okay with that and then he sort of sort of blows him off in the sense yeah. of doesn't go on the date with him and they kind of have a falling out and the film kind of follows him coming to realise that um, actually he does want to kind of go for it in the end. Um, but I don't know, it's, it's... So I'm right in saying, I meant to look this up before I came on, that the the medication that kind of really stopped people from dying from AIDS... Uh, came in in I think it was 96 um, oh, okay. which which I think was like the year after this yeah this is 95 oh. yeah so I know they're talking about AZT which had been around <laughs> since the 80s and there's another one they mention as well that I know um, Darius is on um, yeah so those AZT was definitely something that had been around for a while because I think isn't that the thing that's in Dallas Buyers Club um, I'm not sure about Dallas Buyers Club, but it's definitely mentioned in Angels in America. Yeah. Um, the um, Roy, Roy th- Cohn has like a whole fridge full of it. That's a whole yeah. like plot 
exactly. That, yeah. And that was something that I think helped slow it down. But it was it was the introduction, I believe, don't hold me to it. It's the introduction of combination therapy, which became standard in 1996, which was the thing that mm. stopped people from um, essentially dying of of AIDS when it was given to them. And mm. uh, and so this film being being done just before that, it almost feels like it's the peak of, you know, where the most people must have been uh, dying of of AIDS, and that the 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 kind of it's been ravaging the gay community for its longest period um, yeah. before it starts getting better. Um, and so, like, as a time capsule of that moment, I found it very interesting. And w- weirdly, like, of all of these things, of all of these three films, despite being made the earliest, this one feels more specifically, like, about gay people and yes. gay life at that time and written by a gay person. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, it's not really catering to like any straight audiences at all, which I mm. found quite interesting. And I think that it it does it 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 does it in a kind of a slightly trying to well, doesn't always succeed in being funny, but it obviously has this kind of framework of being a slightly breezy sort of uh, rom com, but does tap into this like real fear that you know so many people would have had, and this these yeah. conversations about safe sex and how that affects you know, the quality of the sex as this one guy sees it and the other guy is talking about all the amazing sex they can have that is safe. And um, I don't, I found all of that quite, quite interesting. Um, and I found, even though he is, the main character is sort of, the film is quite critical towards him. Mm. Um, I did find it, I did find him sympathetic. I did feel yeah. like that very like authentic way that someone who had been um you know living in gay new york for however long throughout the whole of the the aids crisis would start feeling towards both sex and also relationships and also just kind of being gay in general yeah Uh, so i thought that was interesting i I really did like Patrick Stewart. <laughs> I thought he was fun. I thought that that gay they they were. I knew exactly where that story was going to end. Yeah. Um, but but you know they it was just quite fun to see him in that mode. Mm. Um, and I I also liked the um, I liked the love interest as well. He kind of rem- he kind of looked like a cross between Scott Bakula and John Hamm. <laughs> um, and but it kind of worked and. Like the scene where he goes back to his apartment when he's dancing, he, he and he gets the voicemail message of the guy yeah. saying he's not, and then he kind of like dances and uh, yeah. to sort of you know some sort of nineties sort of house disco music. I was like, I thought I thought that was um, quite well done. I like that. Yeah. Bit. I, he was. I thought he was a good actor. Yeah. Um, and but but yeah, ultimately. I did quite like it, but it did it did have moments of humour that were a bit broad. It didn't quite yes. work, and and it it kind of flitted between scenes I enjoyed and scenes I did not. But definitely a very interesting watch and film. I'm surprised I've not seen before. Also full of celebrity cameos like Christine Baranski, yes. Jason Cameron was there. I was like, oh my god, that stays Jason Cameron, and then. I thought it was funny that Sigourney Weaver is so on so much of like the posters and the DVD covers. It's like yeah, that's and so Sigourney funny. Weaver as the third, <laughs> the third like lead of the film, when she literally has one scene and is as much of a cameo as 
basically all the other cameos. I love that scene though. Mm. I uh, I think she really knocks it out the park. Um, I think it's one of the one of the funniest scenes. Um, yeah, I think I like it more than you do, which maybe is partly because I like had seen it um maybe like 15 years ago so I went through the same thing as you of like seeking out all of the like queer movies and everything I saw most of the same ones um I I think I saw a couple uh there's one called Bear Cub and then there's one called that I think is just called Balls I don't know if you've seen those ones um, well the Balls is German Bear Cub is maybe Spanish um, but they were just like in the LGBT section of the university library, which is where I watched most of these. Um, so it would have been around that time, like early days of undergrad, uh, that I that I probably would have seen this for the first time. Um, so I think maybe I have like a residual fondness for it for that reason. But actually, I, I found it held up better than I was expecting. Mm. Um compared to some of those others that feel very kind of low budget and very indie it does have a kind of slight sheen to it you mm. know more so than a lot of other queer films of that era which tended to be much lower budget it is still very much kind of you know um this is a small film and um you know it's very much based on a play and i think that you can make some of the same criticisms of it that we've made of bros in the sense that you know the central romance is kind of sidelined in favor of the emotional arc of this slightly neurotic central figure it's quite mm. bitty um mm. but it works better than bros for me partly because it's shorter um but yeah i mean i think stephen weber's performance is so um heartfelt i think he's mm. great i think the chemistry between them is really strong mm -hmm. i totally agree with you that they skip right to <laughs> when steve is like i may even love you it's like hang on a second how <laughs> many times have you guys even hung out like three yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's too much uh, but, you know, I do think they have this really strong chemistry. Um, I think they're both really good. And I, you know, I, I can see them together in a way that I couldn't so much in Bros. Mm -hmm. um, and I also think it's really skillful in the way that it engages with the AIDS crisis while also keeping this kind of light touch and never getting maudlin. Mm -hmm. um, but without also like un ever undermining the seriousness of the AIDS crisis and like the emotional heft of that. I think the memorial mm. scene in particular does a really good job of kind of walking that line mm. um, where he's kind of like cruising the memorial and then he's like, what mm. am I doing? You know, I, I, I like that. I do agree with you. I think it is too bitty. Um, I feel like the Nathan Lane scene yeah, is no. one where like, it's got one of the best lines in the movie and it has the introduction of the balloon metaphor which i like the best line in the movie for me by the way is um the only true blasphemy is the refusal of joy i really like yeah. that um yeah, no i i also like that line but then other parts of that scene were just like yeah it's like too much. oh i'm i'm a priest and between like a altar boy and a something you know as in like of yeah. course i'm gay it's just yeah I'm, 
it's yeah it's it's too much it's too much um so yeah stuff like that and then of course the olympia dukakis bit um where it's kind of like olympia dukakis already was like a cis woman who'd played um a trans woman Mm. in tales of the city and then in this movie she plays the mother of a trans woman who is played by a cis guy and it's really awkward it just has not aged well at all and you know that the joke is kind of at the expense of the olympia dukakis character but still Mm. at the same time you know the fact that they haven't got a trans woman to play this character of course we all know like that was standard for years and years and even until quite recently but even so like it feels um it feels cringe Mm. And it does feel like part of the joke is that this woman doesn't pass as well. Mm. Um, it kind of feels like there's a little bit of a kind of, I don't know, most of the joke is on the Olympia Dukakis character and her being this kind of um, trying very hard to be supportive, but also kind of clueless parent. Mm. But mm. part of the joke is also like, you know, look at this man in a dress a little bit yeah. it feels yeah. like yeah. Yeah. um so so that really hasn't aged well and you know but i i do also think that there are moments that i mean i i i love the sigourney weaver scene i think she's really funny mm. um i think i don't mind the breaking the fourth wall stuff as much as you do i actually find it kind of charming mm. i don't mind the kind of episodic nature of it and the little um like chapters and subsections mm. but I, ultimately you know i just think for all its flaws it has this real charm to it mm. that i don't think either bros or fire island have and mm. i think that's because it's not trying to break into the mainstream and it's not mm. trying to win over a straight audience it's just mm. not and again like a huge amount of that is budgetary it's like mm. you know this is a low budget movie so it can afford to be a little bit weird it can afford to kind of do its own thing and appeal to a small niche queer audience mm. without holding a straight audience's hand through anything you know mm. so i have i have a lot of i have a lot of time for jeffrey mm. um and i feel like there's for all that is kind of rough around the edges about it i feel like there's something that's been a little bit lost um in more recent queer cinema that has to be higher budget and slicker and kind mm. of right through into a mainstream audience and all of this stuff yeah that, you know those earlier queer films were able to to be a little bit more off-piste and niche mm. and weird and uh, yeah i just i i feel like there's something very particular about that era of queer cinema that has been lost mm. yeah um so, I also yeah. feel like I don't know. There's sometimes I, I've seen arguments made about like there was this that film called In uh, In from the Side. Uh, I don't know. Uh, in, in from the side. In from the side. It was like the gay rugby film. Yes. Yeah, so I saw this. That fact. I at uh, Flair, the London um, LGBT uh, film festival. There, uh, there's similar in both years. There was one called Fire Firebird, which was set on like a um like a soviet yeah that's uh, ringing a vague bell 
Firebird is a romantic war drama about a soldier on a Soviet air force base who falls for like he has like a sexual affair with like a fighter pilot and it's you know it's a i think it's a british film or maybe it's an international mm. production but you know they're all speaking english with like a vague eastern european accent and it just okay. kind of goes through every stand you know there's like a woman who's like who's kind of the unknown unknowing woman who ends mm-hmm. up you know one of them marries to the woman because uh, he wants to try and prove that he's straight and the other one wants to be open. The Michelle Williams. To, the um, Michelle Williams, yeah. And yeah. there's a whole thing where there's like a flashback to someone witnessing a tragic, a, a traumatic homophobic thing from their past, which has made them scared yeah. of being gay. And uh-huh. like just it's every like, you know, it's just, it was a bit silly. And then um, then I saw this one put in from the side at the next for the, the next year. Mm. And um it was just about it wasn't a comedy so it's not really sort of relevant to this but it was a romantic drama about two uh these people on a gay rugby team and two of them have an affair but they both they both have other partners um okay. they have an affair on this uh, and they're on this rugby team together both of them i think are in open relationships with their partners but um they fall for each other and it's it, it, and then it all blows up and you know there's a falling out in the rugby team um um and then i think they don't they don't get back together in the end but it's just like this film was two and a half hours spoilers Uh, oh my god i mean i would not recommend it this was two and (laughs) a half hours long it was quite glossy in terms of how it looked Mm. and like the you know it's ended up on netflix and so it's kind of marketed like it's really glossy and kind of high budget it's not really high budget it's still an indie film but it has this certain sort of sheen to it but the script is so bad and it goes on forever and you you never get a sense of why these two people would stay with the the partners that they're already with um particularly the main guy whose relationship with his um with his boyfriend is just the the boyfriend just seems so awful i'm like why do you want to stay with this guy instead of with this guy you're having the affair with then and he spends half the film wrestling over this um but the point i was going to make this is a very rambly point but um you know i saw some people praise this film because you know it's it in terms of representation it's Mm. you know it's not it you know they're in open relationships with their other partners and you know yeah. it's, that's being represented and you know it doesn't have a tragic ending yeah. and it doesn't follow like the so much of the standard sort of cliched gay movie storylines i'm yeah, like yeah, yeah. guys sometimes those films are better even when they <laughs> follow those things. you know like i'd no, much rather watch broke back mountain or yes. like, like call me by your name or something you know like some of okay, these okay well like, not so much call me by your name i mean i don't love call me by your name but I, what i'm saying is like this, the quality of the filmmaking is clearly i think better in films like this to yeah. to and it's kind of like this slight sense of like you know as long as it's representing something or some that therefore it's I know it's kind of it's, worthy and I find so that annoying watching something no because you, I wanted, completely... you wanted to do both you wanted to do both that's the it yes you want and, both and, and you so rarely get it and it, yeah and I feel like a total hypocrite because you know I'll watch something like bros and be kind of like oh I didn't think the bio representation was very good and that put me off but then at the same time like I don't want to watch something where the main selling point is that it's good representation mm. you know that's like boring as fuck mm. um so like so yeah I think it's 
I think it's still rare to get something that can really tick both of those boxes. And it sucks because like straight people and, you know, people in a dominant culture, etc., don't have to worry about that because there's so many other movies that represent them that they don't need to have like good representation. You can have a film with a bunch of shitty straight people who, you know, like act terribly and it doesn't reflect anything about straight people because they're not mm. othered and they're not you know, because because the weight isn't on this movie to be representation. It's just a movie, you know? Mm. And you know, with any with any media that is about a minority group, I think there's always this added layer of A, is it good? But B, you know, what does this say about us as a community and how does it reflect mm-hmm. on us? And how is the dominant culture going to feel when they watch it? And, how, you know, how is it going to, uh, you know, affect their level of acceptance for us as a community and blah, 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 you know? And it, yeah. that's always... Very an extra I mean, I know, like burden you know yeah and i know you didn't watch it but like i always come back to like looking when i think of this which i yeah, think i want to watch is, looking i know it is it's, it's basically for me it's like the best tv show made about gay people right and immediately it had people it it a um it had people us people being like oh it's three white guys immediately taking against it because of that actually one of them has is hispanic actually not every character in the show like those aren't the only three characters in the whole show, uh, you know. So actually, it's not even a particularly accurate criticism when you watch yeah. the whole show. Anyway, you know, they're not all like skinny and blah. blah, blah. Um, I know, and I was guilty but, of that as well because I was kind of like, "There's no women in it." It's like, okay, yeah. well, whatever. But yeah, you do get you do get one token woman. But, uh, <laughs> not that's much better. But um, but the thing is, you know, I'm just like, but but and there's, so there's that, and there's also the fact that you know every gay person watched this or like, you know, watched the first episode and decided they didn't like it or decided that it was boring, who ultimately would not be into this type of thing anyway. Like it mm. was kind of a quiet 30 minute, basically like a kind of a character drama thing. It wasn't like a girls or sex in the city that that was more sitcom like. It was, mm. you know, it was Andrew Haig. It was like that sort of sort of quite quite subtle um character focused style. Yeah. But but very, very actually aesthetically like lovely to look at, but you know, in a quite a sort of an indie way. Um, so a bunch of people watching it because it was a gay thing who would never really be into something like that. And then you get a bunch of people saying it was boring. So that, that and that is something that, you know, it, fortunately it did have two seasons and a, a, a movie, which is, you know, is fairly well good. But, you know, I absolutely loved that. And I think that the, the, the quality of the writing, the quality of the performances, and I, I think is mostly really great. And the way it manages to strike that balance between, you know, talking about issues that the gay community face and, you know, yeah. different facets of the gay community in modern day, while also feeling very f- just focused on good, like, character development and stories and things that make you sort of emotionally invest with it. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know. Well, I think, and this is something that I do want to talk about in more detail, probably in like a separate episode, because we're not going to have time to I actually, dig I do have to go into this. Minutes, by the way, because my yeah. baby's great. Um, no, that's all good. No, I was just going to say that I actually do think, and I mentioned this to you, I kind of feel like the rom-com has found its natural home on TV now. Mm. Um, 
and this isn't a new thing like obviously the whole kind of like will they won't they trope in a sitcom goes back at least to the 80s when the kind of workplace sitcom replaced the family based sitcom um you know obviously you've got like moonlighting you've got cheers and then that became you know so much a thing in a sitcom Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you know, so this isn't a new phenomenon, but I think that more and more uh, you're getting these really interesting romantic stories and, you know, uh, comedic romantic stories on TV, like Lovesick, for example, and the mm-hmm. High Fidelity reboot. I mean, mm-hmm. these are predominantly straight stories. Um, Our Flag Means Death is one that I I feel like I need to have a whole episode devoted to, so I won't go into it too much right now. But I think it's such an interesting um, example of of a of a rom com that's on TV. Um, but also like Superstore, you know, there's there's so many great examples, and I do think that maybe. The feature length rom-com has had its day. Maybe it's Mm. kind of over. And I also feel like I'm kind of continually chasing the dragon of like the feeling that watching Nora Ephron movies in the 90s gave me. Mm. And I'm probably never going to get that back. Like that's probably (laughs) just never going to happen again. So Mm. if I'm holding every rom-com I watch to that standard, I am never going to be satisfied. Mm. Um, But I I do kind of feel like, yeah, maybe TV is the more natural home for the, for the romantic comedy because it does Mm. allow for that slow burn, you know, it allows for digressions in a way that doesn't like undercut the, the through line, Whereas it does when it's something like Bros, where it just gets like baggy and overlong. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That's that's my that's my little theory about the future of the rom com. I guess it remains to be seen. Okay, before mm-hmm. you go and take your dog out, which I know you need to do, um, I have one question for you. I saw mm-hmm. this. Uh, there's a documentary. It's kind of like a feature length video essay, I guess you would call it. It's called Romantic Comedy. It's by Elizabeth Sankey. Mm-hmm. At the end of this film, she claims that God's Own Country is a rom com. Mm-hmm. Give me your thoughts on that. Um, I don't agree because I don't, I don't know where the com I don't know where the <laughs> comedy is. Uh, I just I I uh, no. I mean, I can imagine. I can maybe if I thought about it, I could you I could maybe make arguments, and perhaps she does that it has a certain arc to it that um, that that is might maybe familiar with the rom com arc, but it, it feels like. It has this quite, it has this rawness and this, um, some scenes that are, you know, quite sad. Uh, yeah. Well, obviously, rom-coms can be sad, but it just feels like it has this underlying sense of um, finding some good and finding some happiness in what is ultimately like quite a bleak situation and a character who is um, quite damaged. Yeah. And I feel like it has two jokes in it, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> It's not a comedy film. Yeah, I just thought it, she was stretching so much to try and say something about rom-coms becoming more diverse because she made this before like the recent rash of queer rom-coms. Mm. And I was just kind of like, God's own country, Elizabeth Sankey. Come on. That's that you, you pull the other one. Mm. Uh, that's not going to work. But I do love God's own country. But yeah, I would say I would I would say there are two loves at best in that film. Mm. 
Um, okay, listen, I'm going to let you go, but um, it was a pleasure as always to have you on. Thank you okay. again so much. Thank you. And uh, have fun uh, letting your puppy relieve itself. I will do. <laughs> okay. Speak soon. Speak soon. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Bye.